and welcome to The Bunker. I'm Ros Taylor. My guest today is from Sweden and she's an ethnographer, which means she studies the culture of particular societies. She spent time with a group of people whom you may not feel much sympathy with, women who refuse to take vaccines and the Covid vaccine in particular. Mia Marie Hamelin, welcome to The Bunker. Thank you so much for inviting me. We didn't always pay a lot of attention to it before COVID, but vaccine scepticism has been around for a long time, hasn't it? Oh, yes, it has. Uh, usually uh, researchers like to pinpoint that it uh, has existed as long as the vaccines. Um, so you would find, for example, huge demonstrations uh, in the shift between the uh, 1800s and the 1900s. Um, uh, in different parts of England, for example, and also in Canada. Uh, and this was because of uh, the smallpox uh, vaccine that was um, changed, you know, from, from being voluntary to being compulsory. Uh, and this um, uh, spurred these huge protests. So we, we would definitely recognize the, the um the placards, you know, the protests in the streets with long demonstration. So you would find these really big demonstrations uh, concerning this change when, when it comes to the smallpox vaccines. And, and, and um, a historian, Durback, uh, has written very interesting about this, I think, you know, um, that she has uh, showed how this was also con um, uh, it was related to or, or it was made re in relation to ideas of class. Uh, so it became a class issue. So the middle class, for example, they protested uh, because of liberal uh, reasons. And the working class, uh, they demonstrated to kind of uh, promote that they were uh, not like filthy uh, and non-responsible uh, citizens, which uh, some people uh, claim that they were. So there, there were, were definitely like um, uh, class-infused uh, protests you would find at that time, but really huge protests. Yes, because the aristocracy generally supported it, didn't they? I remember Catherine the Great was a big advocate of the smallpox vaccine. Yeah, yeah, you're right about that, yeah. Now, you are not a vaccine sceptic, but you are particularly interested in why people reject vaccines. Most societies don't force people to have most jabs. But during COVID, in many parts of Europe, life did become more difficult if you refused to have the vaccine, didn't it? Yes. Uh, and in Sweden, um, we are uh, known for our um, uh, high levels of social capital and also social trust. Uh, which was shown through the way that we dealt with the pandemic in, in total, you know, the way we, um, we, we didn't have as many uh, lockdowns or we didn't have uh, the same lockdowns that you, you did in other parts of Europe, for example, because the authorities and the politicians could trust in us to act in the way that they asked us to. But, but what also happened was that uh, the vaccination criticism that we hardly knew that we had in Sweden were exposed through um, the COVID-19 vaccinations and when they were introduced. And one thing that these uh, people found enormously um, annoying or, or also um, uh, that they were super critical about was the vaccine passes, because this, they meant, uh, was a way of transforming the voluntary COVID-19 vaccines into uh, something compulsory, something you had to take. And we, we 
you know, this this is probably also a discourse that you would recognise in the UK, for example. Yes, we did. We had vaccine passports to go to a concert, for example. You had to show that you'd had uh, the requisite number of jabs. So you decided to study the vaccine sceptic movement in Sweden. In fact, I think you were doing that before COVID. And you spent time with a group of middle-aged women. And you didn't just go and interview them. You actually spent time sharing what they were doing and getting to know them really well. What did you learn? Yeah, my starting point was that uh, after having made a couple of interviews with the vaccine skeptical uh, individuals, this is not what they walk around thinking of all the time. It's it, it's usually just a small uh, part of, of their everyday life. And as an ethnologist, or you call me an ethnographer, you know, um, it's it, we always strive to meet people and uh, understand them in their uh, cultural context. We we like to see people as active subjects, and we are also compassionate about the things that we study. You know, so we have like a compassionate attitude towards towards all our interlocutors that we meet. So. Um, because we could track in Sweden as elsewhere a quite condescending tone when it in different newspapers and other media outlets we, we you know you could find that kind of uh, condescending soli- solidarity claiming arguments pointing the finger to those people uh, that didn't want to take the covid-19 vaccinations for different reasons and then then i happened to um find um uh, one of my interlocutors in a region in Sweden called Helsingland. Uh, and I found her through movement on a platform, because in Sweden we had this movement that was official, that was called Roll Up the Sleeve. I don't know if you had the same in um, Britain. We had similar campaigns, I think. So Roll Up the Sleeve and Take the Jab, right? Uh, and then uh, a counter movement uh, was started online um, uh, called a roll down the sleeve. So I, I, I found this uh, woman through that hashtag, uh, roll down the sleeve hashtag. Uh, and she had this uh, amazing way of portraying her vaccination skepticism. She, she used beautiful photos from her region where she comes from in, in Helsingland with black lakes, you know, and these deep forests and uh, weathering uh, hills and, and uh, winding roads. And this is such a beautiful area in, in Sweden. But it's also an area uh, where you find the traces of urbanization and post-industrial area where, where you would find like big industries having shut down and also empty stores, empty schools, and yeah, um, all, all these kinds of uh, flight from the countryside, we call it in, in Swedish, you know, you would, you would find these traces in, in this region. But I went there and, and I got to know her and, and also her friends, and I, I had the opportunity to spend some time with her. And what were their reasons for not wanting the jab? Mm, their reasons, if I start with the... Anna, this main interlocutor, she became convinced when her children were small. She decided after some severe thinking and researching 
because usually they do use different sources to uh, uh, come to this conclusion that they don't want to take the jab. They, they do do research. <laughs> and um, she ended up in finding that uh, she thought that vac- vaccinations might be, because it's usually this kind of, of phrasing, you know, it's not like it is, but it might be more dangerous uh, to the health uh, than the actual uh, infectious, infectious diseases that they uh, are supposed to pre- protect oneself from. She explained it in a way of, of uh, relying upon nature to provide us with healthy, strong, physical bodies uh, that are meant to tackle uh, these kinds of infectious diseases. And, uh, and we do recognize this kind of reasoning from other vaccination skeptical or hesitant people, you know, the way they trust in, in nature and also the, the, the own body. And, the, and here I would say that the immune system, as she explained it, is, is made into something spiritual. It's something more than just a, a function in the body. It's, it also has to do with uh, spirituality, spirituality in the way that you can strengthen uh, your immune system by being spiritual, for example, and and practicing spiritual rituals, etc. This is something that um, a couple of my relatives who are also vaccine sceptical believe, that if you can look after your body, then you don't need, as it were, the state's help an intervention in order to protect it. So it, it gives people a feeling of autonomy, actually, doesn't it? it? It does. And that kind of expression is so interesting today, I think. The need for individuals to say, it's my body. Here I will draw the limit between me and society. And I think vaccinations are, are super good at showing or, or highlighting exactly that limit between the body, because because the shot is something that you actually take in your body and you do it voluntary, mostly. In, in most countries, it's voluntary. And, and you do it when you're healthy. So it's, it's, it's something that you do to protect yourself in the future. And, and, and then we also have this omission bias uh, connected to vaccinations that it might be easier to, be, uh, to become ill because you didn't take the vaccination than become may be ill because of uh, the vaccination. That's something you did because diseases is something that we can't control. They just happen. They are everywhere. We will, we will eventually become ill and then eventually we will also become well again. So, so uh, encapsulated in, in this kind of reasoning is the restitution nar- illness narrative. The restitution illness narrative and that narrative gives us the, the uh, it comforts us in, in the way that it's it it tells us you know if if we rely upon it that we we will recover <laughs> we will be well again vaccine skepticism is linked to a whole plethora of other beliefs that tend to circulate in what you could call the qanon universe things like the pandemic that the pandemic was brought about artificially, uh, perhaps by someone like Bill Gates, in order to be able to vaccinate the whole world. These beliefs circulate. How much did the women who you talked to 
sign up to to that or were their beliefs quite different to some extent they did um and um, an interesting reflection you know a reflection that i can make there is that when they spoke about potential conspiracy theories you know it's, it's it, they wouldn't call it conspiracy theories in the first place you know but mm. when their thoughts were drawn in, into that direction they usually lowered their voices and kind of whispered uh, was a little bit the feeling of that they didn't want it to to be recorded you know or that this was dangerous to talk about or and I would say the most common way of speaking about conspiracy theories that I would call conspiracy theory thinking is is the question mark again, you know, saying, could it perhaps be that, you know, what about uh, this theory about this and that, you know? So it's not like most people don't claim that it is in a certain way, but usually they, they pose questions instead, uh, uh, which I find interesting. So Is there a particularly Swedish angle to this because as you say Sweden has quite large areas of depopulated towns areas that have been to some extent left behind Mm. and maybe don't feel that they are part of mainstream Swedish life or that they're excluded in some way did you find that played into what the women were saying uh, yes, to a certain extent, I think it is. Uh, it might also, uh, you, you would maybe find the same pattern somewhere else that, you know, in, in a similar region in, in another country. But what, what I think is important to highlight is how they comforted each other in this exposed area. So they found comfort and their strength and their beliefs and the support they need in in these small cultural communities so this was like a small cultural community and i think that anna for example the main interlocutor is a very strong person her main feature is is humility i mean she was a very uh, soft person and and a very kind person speaking with a quite low voice so she she was not a very in that kind of way uh she was not a protester or she was not a, an angry person or anything, on the opposite, really, and also extremely generous towards me as a stranger coming from the university in, in the southern parts of Sweden. She, she invited me to different houses and, and to different, and into saunas and, uh, and into the forest that we, we took these long walks together with horses and, and everything. So she was enormously generous and also trust, uh, trustful, you know, she, she trusted me, a trust that I had to take care of, you know, and, and also respond to. Yeah, but but what what I was trying to say is that I think that when being exposed, like I think in, economically and in other ways, you are in in this deep populated area, and I think this was the case, you know, that they they found their motivations to refrain from vaccinations together, and and they were not organized; they were just friends. But I, I could hear when they spoke about their experiences from society also that they were skeptic about modern medicine. And some of them also had experiences of, of uh, seeking help for different reasons, you know, for physical problems. And, and, and they were not listened to and they were not um, 
the physicians didn't didn't take their symptoms or problems for real, you know, or they they didn't believe in them or whatever. So it was like a, um, and and this this developed into a larger critique against uh, modern medicine. And this is also that I can uh, tracks that I can find in in other interviews that I've made with vaccine hesitant uh, people. That it usually starts with that they have. Um, seeked help through modern medicine, but they they were left alone, you know, with their problems. They didn't get any help. So they no longer trusted the state, really, to help them when they were in trouble. And that became a belief that they, you know, why should they do what the state asked them now? Exactly. And it's not like these uh, people in these northern region in Sweden protest loudly in the streets because of the lack of work opportunities, for example. You would never see that in Sweden like you would see in France, for example. It happens extremely rarely in in Sweden. But uh, you can protest in different ways. And I would say they do. And, And another aspect of it is that because it is depopulated as well, it's an argument uh, against vaccines uh, per se. Like, who, who would give them uh, dangerous infectious diseases there where you, where you don't meet that many people? So uh, they feel safe because of it is a depopulated uh, region as well. And, and it, it, I also mentioned uh, the big forests and, and, and the lakes and everything and this beautiful, beautiful landscape that they live in. And Anna meant, for example, that this in itself made her uh, more open to a spiritual connection with Mother Earth, you know, or, or uh, the world, really. And so it, it, it's like the, the place itself does something to her uh, that she can use to, to nurture her her immune system, for example. And uh, another word that it is used quite frequently is intuition. You know, this also a female angle of that, I think, you know, this female intuition that you just know, if you just listen in to your body, you would get the answer, what the body needs. And But the children who, who were um, unvaccinated then you know that they are grown-ups now and now they have moved (laughs) to bigger cities they don't live there anymore so people who refuse vaccines are often accused of being selfish and lacking solidarity that's a narrative we saw a lot during the pandemic and you can see why that comes about we we all many of us wanted more people to be vaccinated so that society could open up and it seemed to to uh, to many of us, that it was almost conditional upon people getting vaccinated. But how did these women feel about that? Presumably they didn't, they didn't feel quite the same way. That's true. And my impression overall is if you attack people on that point, you know, that uh, refrain from vaccinations, it will only uh, nurture their uh, anti-vaccination sentiments. (laughs) Uh, This is something that I've experienced many times when doing interviews with vaccine critical people. If if you end up uh, accusing them for, for lacking solidarity, they are like, wait a second, you know, you cannot say that about me. You know, they get really angry, really. So you could say that it's it's a combination of a lack of belonging to uh, an imagined political center that also became visible during my uh, ethnography that is represented by the capital, uh, Stockholm. 
that could be seen as an example of the reluctant margins of, of welfare. So you have the relationship on the one hand between people's actions to achieve their own goals and, and the structuring effects of, of politics on the other. So in this region, you could say that people don't allow themselves to become totally subordinated to the ideas of policy, but neither do they act in, in, in valiant resistance uh, towards it. They don't protest in the streets, as I said earlier. But, but, but they do express reluctance against something. You know, it's like it could be something or it could, it could be that they demonstrate reluctance towards techno-scientific modernity in a more general way. So, so this local belo- belonging uh, that I could see in this place, I mean, firstly, they expressed solidarity towards each other in the group, but also towards people, all people that choose to not take the COVID-19 jabs, you know, so... And, and this is people that these are people that they don't know uh, because this is usually how solidarity is described. Like you have to feel uh, solidarity towards people you don't know, otherwise it's not called solidarity. But they um, protect and and stand up for everyone's right to to say no to to the jabs, and, and that could be interpreted, I mean, as a as a solidarity expression. Tell me a bit about the rest of your project. One of the focuses is on rumours, isn't it? Yes, that's correct. Uh, So one of the studies that I'm working on now is a Twitter study where we try to understand people's way of spreading rumours concerning mRNA vaccinations or vaccines in particular. So it's interesting to try to find out what makes, what what is it that makes people um, more afraid about those vaccines than other vaccines? And here we have also found that many authorities have tried to debunk rumors uh, um, concerning mRNA vaccines in particular, saying that they can't uh, alter the DNA, for example. But So this is a part of what we study right now. And, and usually I would say that rumors in general have an unnecessarily bad rumor <laughs> that we need uh, rumors. And it's, it's a way of spreading knowledge before we have confirmed uh, information. And sometimes it's actually very important to do it. And rumors are sometimes called the, the, the world's oldest news medium. So the spreading of vaccination rumors during a pandemic cannot surprise anyone, but it's very, very interesting to try to understand them. Mia Marie Hamelin, Senior Lecturer at Lund University. Thanks so much for talking to me. Thank you so much. And you can read more about Mia Marie's uh, research at the Conversation website, if you Google her name and the conversation. I'm Ros Taylor. Thanks for listening. The Bunker Daily was written and presented by Ros Taylor. The producer was Kasia Tomashevich. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis, with audio production by Thomas Rojas. The group editor is Andrew Harrison. With music by Kenny Dickinson and artwork by James Parrott, The Bunker is a Podmasters production. Oh, 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 oh,